Greetings, everyone, and a warm welcome to you in Intersections. This is a place where we seek to have a dissolving of all kinds of boundaries in order to allow us to explore the fullest possibilities in human potential in our own true nature. We dissolve East and West, inner and outer, purpose and profit, science and spirituality, and what have you. And while in recent episodes, we have had the opportunity to learn from or about some really storied lives, people like Mother Teresa, people like Candice Leitner, a world changer in her own regard. Today, I have the great privilege and opportunity to bring into our midst someone who, while he's also making a very beautiful journey in his own life, has also dedicated his life to the study of human nature and to the exposition and the teaching of human nature, a scientist, a psychologist in Scott Barry Kaufman. And so without further ado, let me welcome into our midst, Scott Kaufman. Scott, thank you for joining us. Yay, thank you. It's a delight to be here. And I guess my first question to you, Scott, is how do you get to be so prolific, right? I haven't even shown people the bibliography of your book, which is like extensive beyond, beyond compare. So. How do you keep on top of this exploding tree of psychological studies and research that happens out there? Wow, what a question. Well, I've, I've really been, uh, w- once I caught the psychology bug in college, uh, there was really no looking back for me. And I became very almost obsessed with understanding as much as I could about the nature of human intelligence. And that's where I started off in the field, was I wanted to understand about human intelligence and how we measure uh, intelligence and IQ uh, testing and all that. And I must have gone to the library and like re- just just spent most of my days in the intelligence section of the of the of the library. Just so obsessed with these topics. There, there's a, a voracious curiosity within me that I don't know how to explain that that energy, uh, that energy force that is within me. But it uh, has been insatiable, insatiable since I caught the psychology bug 20 years ago. So I, I just do as much as I can to do public science communication of psychology. And uh, I wrote a Psychology Today blog where I, I wrote 50 articles, I think, there. And then I went to Scientific American and been running there for the last nine years. And I might now go back to Psychology Today. But I, this column, Beautiful Minds, just I'm just so driven to do that. It also helps when you don't have a family. <laughs> it also helps when you don't do anything else in your life but psychology. I was watching like the Michael Jordan uh, Last Dance documentary. And um, uh, not, I guess I'm not comparing myself to Michael Jordan, but when I was watching that documentary, it really was fascinating to me to watch him talk about how people said, well, Michael Jordan, why didn't you get interested in, why didn't you talk about social justice issues, politics, all these other things going on? He's like, I'm a basketball player. Like, that's all I want to do in life. And I feel so similarly about psychology. I feel such a deep passion for understanding human nature that I've made a lot of sacrifices in my life. I want to make that very clear. And whenever people ask me, why are you so, how are you so prolific, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I've made a lot of sacrifices. I, I've chosen to live an unconventional life and, um, and put all my heart and soul and mind into understanding human nature and to the exclusion of almost everything else. So I don't know. That's my yeah. best answer. <laughs> Scott, I think there itself, you've given us the first really powerful insight about uh, success, about flourishing in life, 
from your own personal personal journey and your own personal choice because it's something that I like to talk about in my class on the pursuit of purpose, which is purpose is as much about all the things that you want to say no to because there's only so much energy and time each of us has in one life. And uh, in order to really do full justice to whatever our core passion is, you know, we've got to feel comfortable in saying no to a lot of things. And so it sounds like you are very self-aware and self-disciplined on that front and a source of, I would say, inspiration to me and as I see as I see what, what you've done here. Thank you for sharing that. Not just what you do, but also what you've chosen to not do. You know, I'm yeah. grateful for that. So Scott, let's talk about your book, Transcend. And what I want to preview for us is that as we get to the later part of this conversation, what I will actually emerge with is a very powerful point of confluence between the journey that I think you've been on, right, in your career and in your life, and the journey that I've been on. This is a part of a conversation that you and I haven't even had so far, right, in our um, oh, precious time spent together. But I'd rather even hold you in suspense, if you're okay with it, and build up to that. You're taking a fresh new look at one of the very major pillars of the field of psychology, which is the work of Maslow and what used to be called the hierarchy of needs or the pyramid, right? And you are reinterpreting it in a way that is fresh and more 21st century, but also in a sense, going back to what he truly sought to, I guess, like, yeah, think through and deliver to the world, it seems like. So I'd like you to speak to it in your own words, but let me just kind of invite you to just start us off on this journey as to what motivated you to really bring Maslow to life in a fresh, new, different way. When I was, t I was teaching at University of Pennsylvania, um, a course called Introduction to Positive Psychology, and I was looking at the history of the field, and I discovered the writings of Abraham Maslow and, um, and humanistic psychology, and I fell in love with the writings of humanistic psychology and their focus on uh, the whole person, what it, what it mean to be a fully human being to a fully integrated harmonious human being and i went down this rabbit hole of humanistic psychology and and uh, discovered that abraham maslow and this famous hierarchy of needs that a lot of people depict in terms of a pyramid is actually never drew he never drew a pyramid and he was really talking about at towards the end of his life the importance of of transcendence as a, a, even a higher motivation than self-actualization um, I just felt a, a sense of purpose to set the record straight. How, and not only that, but I'm just so interested in the science of human potential that I decided to scientifically test some of his theories and some of the ideas of the other humanistic psychologists like Raul May and Carl Rogers and Eric Fromm and Karen Hornay and, and see which ones still stood the test of uh, empirical scrutiny in the modern era. And it really inspired me to reconceptualize the hierarchy of needs in a framework that fits exactly what he meant uh, much better, which was that life is a constant tension between insecurity and deprivation and growth. And he argued that there's the the uh, D realm of human existence, the deprivation realm, and then we have the being realm of human existence uh, or the growth realm, the being realm. And he says when we're in the deprivation realm of human existence, we constantly want to impart and control over the world. So we'll, we'll say like, we'll go around being like, feed me, you love me, accept me, respect me. Uh, but when you can go into the enter the being realm of human existence. It's like replacing a clotted lens with a clear lens. You you no longer are trying to control others, but you ad admire 
things for the way that they are um, and independent of you. Um, you have a sense, a great sense of be love, as Maslow called it, love for the being of others, being being love. And in this in this state of consciousness, the state of motivation, uh, it you you can momentarily reach moments of transcendence. Uh, these most peak experiences, the most wondrous moments that make life worth living. Um, they're very hard to access when you're in the deprivation mode, the D realm. Of human existence so my new framework is a sailboat instead of a triangle because i think a sailboat better encapsulates that that uh that connection that maslow was talking about between security and growth so we need a secure boat in order to move anywhere if we have a leak in our boat you know if we feel severely unsafe uh lack of connection lack of self-esteem we won't go anywhere but if we can have a secure foundation of us of, of self and um, and who we are and uh, and security, then we can explore. We can feel safe to open the sail, open the sail and explore with universal love and purpose and direction. But even though we're all moving in our own directions in our boat, we're all in the vast unknown of the sea together. At any moment, the choppy waves can come down on all the boats at the same time. So there are a lot of aspects of this metaphor that I I think better encapsulates what it means to be a fully human, integrated human. You know, we're a whole vehicle moving through the ocean. We need to be an integrated whole unit to operate at our best, uh, not a trek up a mountain like Maslow uh, is often uh, incorrectly depicted. So Wonderful. Well, we're going to be exploring more about this framework uh, shortly. So uh, when I see this framework, there is something there at the very top in uh, light gray, um, your whole theme around transcendence. We will come back to that in a short while. Mm -hmm. But what do you think that we structure a conversation around starting at the at the base level, the security level, and then I'm making our way up and just kind of getting some insights and thoughts from you on some of the things I've gleaned from, from studying the book? How about that uh, as a framework for our conversation today? Sure. Uh, any direction you want to go in, I'm, I'm open. I, I'm very open to new experiences. So anything you want to throw at me, I'm down. Perfect. So let's start with the, the very base of that framework, which is around safety, security, right? And um, one thing that struck me there is how we're living in a time today when regardless of sort of like where you may have come into this moment from, there are a lot of people feeling somewhat displaced, right? physical safety, emotional safety, lifestyle safety, economic safety, security, and what have you. Based on what you've studied and read and the ideas and thoughts you espouse in that chapter, right? what guidance would you have for, the, for those who are feeling a little bit shaken up with regard to their sense of security in today's time? Well, for sure, this moment has, has upended a lot of people's uh, predictability. Our brain doesn't like that. Our brain you know, it was, uh, that's how it evolved to be constantly trying to use current environmental information in order to predict the future. And you could imagine why there would be adaptive reasons for that in our evolutionary past for survival and reproduction. However, in this moment, there's so much uncertainty that our brain is pitched into a state of psychological entropy which some psychologists are, are studying. And so it is naturally an anxiety provoking. But I want to make clear that it need not be that way. We can start to become comfortable in a way we never have before with extreme uncertainty. We can start to realize that it's a part of life, that change is always a part of life. As much as we may have fooled ourselves into thinking there is a lot of certainty, this moment can teach us a valuable lesson about, about the reality of the world and, and seeing things as clearly as possible. A lot of people 
throughout their lives uh, have traumatic events, things that cause a seismic earthquake, as it's been put in the post-traumatic growth literature, on our lives. And yet they still grow from the experience. This is a, a major finding in the field of positive psychology called post-traumatic growth, showing that not everyone who faces a trauma, in fact, most people who face a trauma don't get post-traumatic stress disorder from it, but find new possibilities for their lives or shift their, their, shift their priorities or find greater uh, sense of creative inspiration. Uh, that's a big one that I've been studying in my career is, is creativity and, and creative inspiration. Or even just a, a sense of motivation and uh, a newfound uh, view of your own capabilities and, and what's possible in others. And certainly people, you don't wish that you had the trauma. You're, you're not happy you had the trauma so that you could have these things. But, but what other choice do you have after it has happened already? Then that, why not grow? You remind me of uh, the um, guest that we had just last week on the show, Candice Leitner, who lost a daughter in a drunk driving accident. Mm. And uh, even with that painful, irreversible loss, she emerges from it with a hero's journey. In her case, recognizing the amount of just passiveness there was in society at that time about something like drunk driving and founding an organization, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, that has just done so much reform in the world, made us all live safer lives. So um, it's beautiful to see you validate through the science and the studies the possibilities that what Candice Leitner became, if I understand you correct, is a untapped or undertapped potential that is there in everyone who faces adversity. And naturally, so over time, many of those people experience that kind of growth. Yeah, you know, we have untapped reservoirs of resiliency because it's often usually not tested. And when that muscle is tested, people are often surprised just how much they are able to adapt. You know, even in this 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 coronavirus, where the, you know, everyone keeps talking about what's the new normal. You know, the first couple of weeks, even the first month, very catastrophic for a lot of people in their minds. But I think people are starting to almost now. It's amazing our ability to adapt. We're almost starting to like forget what life was like before. And now it's like, yeah, of course I'm going to have 50 Zoom meetings today. Like that's isn't that normal? <laughs> you know. <laughs> So I think that it's, it's it, it, right now we're seeing just the incredible human capacity for, for adapting to whatever situation there is. There, I mean, there's a whole field on that uh, affective forecasting. You know, paraplegic, people who, before they're paraplegics, the, if they're put in a questionnaire, how would you feel if you were paraplegic? They, they, they put, oh, my life would be over. There'd be no reason to live, et cetera. And then um, they become paraplegic and then researchers will say like, now how bad is it? And they're like, you know, it's not so bad. I mean, obviously, it's horrible, objectively, being parable, but subjectively, we adapt. And it's amazing how much we adapt. And that happens in the other direction. So they'll have lottery winners do, do affective forecasting. Rate, how happy will you be if you won a billion dollars? Well, turns out that, that we even adapt to to good, th to good things, too. So people who win the lottery, first couple of days, brag to all your friends. Get the new Lamborghini, or the requisite Lamborghini. Uh, buy mom a, a new house, and then you're kind of like, wait. So there, there's still more to life, though, and we adapt, and we. So I think that the, the you know, I, I am a Zen Buddhist. So this is this is the philosophy in which I live my life. So a lot of my principles are obviously going to sound very like that. So you know, I think that the greatest thing you need to do is just just uh, accept change as a natural part of life, and that means change from high the highs as well as change from the lows. Ah, that's, that's a lot of beautiful uh, 
thoughts uh, that you just shared. I, I use that uh, teaching. Uh, I call it, I, I know they call it the hedonic treadmill, I guess, in psychology. I like to call it just simply the happiness treadmill. Yeah. And uh, I remember mostly focusing with my MBA students on the lottery part of the story, just to help ground people that when you're soaring in the skies with your consulting job, investment banking job, etc., just be mindful, just be mindful, right, of the, yeah, the, the treadmill, right? Uh, but I think it's your point. It's a very important observation that you just shared, which is in today's time, with the diminishment of hopes and expectations that have been caused by the pandemic, maybe it's helpful to look at the other side of that equation, right? The the party who actually had something painful happen to them, you know, like 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 you said, like a you know, like a paraplegic. And uh, and to recognize that actually there is life after that. There is life beyond that. In fact, coincidentally, the very first person we had as a guest in intersections is Zhou Zhu from uh, originally from China. Who ended up uh, having to be a quadriplegic, you know, after um, you know a really painful turn of events in his life, and um, and he he shared that story of going from a point of being almost like suicidal in the first few days to a point where he soared yeah. brilliantly, like this beautiful sailboat of yours in in rough That's waters. Exactly. That's exactly right. And here's the thing: it's like we will always have challenges in our lives, and challenges will inevitably. Well, not inevitably, but but if if but often ignite us to want to overcome it and give us a newfound sense of purpose. Challenge can give us purpose, and it's interesting because you know, people become better leaders. But whatever, sure, whatever it is, we can become inspired and determined, fiercely determined to overcome it, and that then becomes our reason for being, the ikigai, reason for being. So I think we underestimate the extent to which our greatest challenges actually offer us the, the greatest reason for being. Yeah, that's beautiful. I like to sometimes think that there is like emotions have energy, pain has energy, disappointment has energy. Yeah. And if you see it as energy, then if you were to be able to redirect that energy, then that energy becomes a force, right, for you. Does that, is that kind of like making sense? Uh, oh, yes. Oh, yes. And I also was reading a comment by Baloo Thomas. Um, I really like that uh, Baloo uh, pointed out that there are other ships. I, I intentionally did depict the illustration so that it wasn't a solitary boat in the ocean to show there are others. You know, we're all in the same, all in the same ocean. Beautiful. So that leads us to the next part of your framework, which is connection. And um, in, in that part of your writing, you talk a little bit about Barbara Fredrickson and some of the work around sort of like micro connection and uh, this notion of sort of like this uh, much deeper, calm and connected place that is so uh, central to uh, rewarding connections in, in life. And that it's not about the quantity of connections you have in terms of the number of friends or social media, you know, followers, etc. But it's something to do with more the quality. Can you, can you weigh in a little bit more on that? Yeah, I really like the research on high quality connections, suggesting that it really matters to the quality of the connection, not not the quantity of it. And well, plenty of people live with someone and still feel lonely. Uh, some people live alone and don't feel lonely. It's uh, Some people have 100 friends, 100 friends on social media or thousands of friends on social media and feel lonely. Um, some people have one friend and two friends and they feel satisfied. So it really is a matter of the quality of the relationship. And there are certain features that scientists have have unearthed that underlie a high quality connection. And uh, reciprocity is a big one. Uh, you feel like you're in a relationship that has a certain sense of intimacy, disclosure, and mutuality to it. So I've distinguished in my book between the need for belonging and the need for intimacy. Uh, a lot of people 
are seeking intimacy and they think their need for belonging will satisfy it and they realize it doesn't satisfy it. So a lot of people may join cults or uh, gangs or extreme violent extremism. I've been very interested in the psychology of violent extremism. And what you find a lot of people who who uh, get involved in these sorts of things, they're they're seeking transcendence. They're seeking, they're desperately seeking belonging to be part of something larger than themselves, which is a fundamental human human drive. But there isn't a great mutuality there. So the the cult leader or uh, the person in charge of the organization or group really only cares about you to the extent to which you're contributing to to that organization and helping them. How much do they really care about you? Well, a real intimate, uh, high-quality connection is one where both parties admire each other um, on their own, not for what use that they can be to you. Um, But there's a sense of be love, as I talked about earlier, love for the being of others. And high-quality connections, be love permeates that, that whole relationship. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think that at a time like this, when we are so locked down in some ways, um, some people's lives are um, coming, colliding, <laughs> you know, with others, perhaps in, the, in their family or uh, others that they are having to cohabit right now in a way that was, is more intimate than they expected it to be. Perhaps there is an opportunity to use some of what you're saying to more consciously act out that relationship rather than purely by instinct or habit, i.e. to think about what can I do to imbue this relationship with more meaning and more warmth and more fulfillment and really grow as a um, my part of that kind of equation. Is that, is that making sense, uh, Scott, to you? Oh, for sure. I, I want to hear more of you talking. You know, I want to hear more of your, your perspective. You teach a, a whole course in this, and I know your students have told me that it's really inspired inspired them. How are you, um, how are you coping during this pandemic? Well, as you were just talking, it, it was reminding me, you know, thank you for sharing that, uh, about this moment a little while back when I was uh, in New York, and I realized, like, you know, my daughter, who we are raising in India, my wife and her were, were here in India, and I realized, oh, my heavens, you know, this thing could go into lockdown. At some point, international travel could get disrupted. I, I better take a flight back and just kind of like, why? Because I, I, even though I'm used to living, you know, away from them and they from me from time to time, I just realized that in this moment, there might be such an emotional overload that uh, especially my daughter would have to go through that it might be a defining hour for her and might be really important and valuable for me to be here. And that's kind of like what it's been like over the last couple of months. I mean, she's a brave soul and she's uh, she's gone through as much as anybody else uh, in, in a courageous way, showing some of that resilience that you've talked about, but also flashes of like what's going on in, in the world. But I've realized that rather than just operate by instinct, it is important every now and then to step back and examine kind of the dynamic and see like where it's going right and where it's not. And what can I do to be better in a position to bring my best self, as you like to call it. And I do, too. So so thank you for for, for sharing that. There are a couple of sort of um, that uh, something you said reminded me of uh, Pema Chandran, the, the Buddhist uh, writer and her work on relaxing into uncertainty. And um, and there you are. Then you did the big reveal about your... Zen, um. I'm a big fan of uh, Eastern Indian philosophy. I'm a real big fan of of people that mo- that modern day you know yogis that modern day uh, people have not heard of. I-, I have this thing of I want to like bring back wisdom from uh, you know I think that. Th- just because they're dead doesn't mean that we can't talk about them, you know, that we can't bring back some of their wisdom. Um, U.A. Azrani. It turns out Abraham Maslow was so enamored with the writings of U.A. Azrani on the plateau experience that he co-opted that term in his own writings towards the end of his life and talked about why the plateau experience is even more important than the peak experience. And and a lot of people here are familiar with uh 
some maybe some Eastern notions of self-realization will realize that this this will sound very familiar than like the Western notion of self-actualization as you know, climbing to the top of whatever and kind of uh, becoming great. Actually, in the Azrani uh, conceptualization, the height of human existence is your ability to find the miraculous in the everyday. And if you can cultivate that practice, boy, you'll you'll live a life of greater transcendence than than anyone who's constantly fighting to get to the top of some nondescript mountain that they don't even know what's at the top or what the mountain really is. But if you can, if you can just the most profound thing I learned in 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 reading those writings and and hearing Maslow's own description of it is if you can just walk down the street and feel touched by a beautiful flower, you're doing well. Like you're you're doing good in life if you can do that. If you can't do that, all you need in order to appreciate life is uh, winning uh, or um, or always the next, the next thing, the next thing, the next, the next drive. You know that's not uh, going to be a life of of transcendent uh, experiences. Uh, that's beautiful. You know, a couple of thoughts are coming to my mind. One is uh, Albert Einstein. He once said something like, uh, "There are two kinds of people in the world." Those for whom like nothing is a miracle and those for whom like everything is a miracle. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah, I think that, yeah, for Einstein, I think everything was a miracle. Well, I'm going to give you a reference back as a gift. Maybe you know of it. If it, if you do, I'll be super impressed as well. <laughs> but but if you don't, maybe, maybe you'll enjoy this. So Thank you. Thank you. Two things. First of all, um, I'm very happy to hear of your affinity and affiliation with Zen Buddhism. In fact, uh, I know you're in the Los Angeles area, and one of my very dear colleagues at Mentora Institute, Dan Buria, mm. comes himself from the Zen traditions. He um, became actually over time an ordained Zen uh, monk, and he actually runs a Zen center in LA. So when you're a little bit out of lockdown mode, I'd love for you guys to meet. Uh, I know he'd, he'd enjoy it tremendously. Um, oh, I would love that introduction. I would yeah. love that. So you are a, um, an expert on creativity, and he used to be the chief innovation officer of Ogilvy. So, so I think that there'll be a lot of cross-fusion between you guys. There's so much great wisdom within century, within, within generations, there are people. I pray that the wisdom of you, the wisdom of me, the next generation has heard of us, but it's quite possible they won't, right? And right. It, it's just fascinating. I, I love discovering gems from, from, prior, from prior generations. Beautiful. So then I'll start to do a pivot, recognizing the precious... Uh, confines of the time we have, much as I would love to have continued to take us all on a journey step-by-step step through the different parts of your beautiful framework. Here's like, here's something I want to kind of like share with you. What I've realized from reading this book, after having had the joy of getting to know you and knowing you for the last bit of several months that we've actually interacted, Scott, is that in some ways you and I are like seeking the same goal. And we started almost into opposite directions in our opposite like parts of that mountain that we're trying to climb. Uh, if I understand your journey well, you started with a great passion, which you were sharing a little earlier, and curiosity about the discipline of psychology and what it can do to reveal <laughs> the secrets of human nature. Yeah. In my case, when I was in my teens, I got really interested in transcendence. What happens beyond life? How can I touch every star in the universe? What is my connection with not just my blood family, but all of humanity and even insects and plants and everything else and all of that. And the path that I took was not as much Maslow as in the mystics, right? Which uh, 
Growing up in a country like India, one had a lot of access to studying the saints of uh, and truth seekers from different different traditions, you know, around the world. And gratefully so, my father had a very curious and invested mind in something similar. So I would just visit his bookshelf starting when I was 12, 13 years old and, and beyond. I was drawn to wanting to therefore major in psychology in college, but I did not because the psychology I saw at least being taught in Indian colleges at that time was much more the darker states, as you call like the dark core, you know, aspect of humanity. And I was much more interested in the light, you know, the light, you know, aspect of it. Of course, you and I are living in very privileged times today, where in the last 20 odd years, there's been an explosion of more psychological interest in qualities like intelligence, tra transcendence, happiness, joy, flourishing, etc. Yeah. So what happened with me is that I'm growing much more invested in and much more fond of science. Now that science is starting to validate and show an interest in those very things, which until recently, to your point, the only way I could access those was to go back to those people from past periods. You know, I, know. I know. And But what is science adding to the picture, do you think? Yeah, I, I think that would be a great you know, conversation for us to have for a couple of minutes. Do you want me to give you my take? But I'd love to yeah. get your take. So, well, I'd, I'd love to hear your take. Well, um, What's I, the would point? Say, I would say three things. First, that for some of us, it might be hard to like separate the wheat from the chaff in terms of traditional wisdom, spiritual wisdom, etc. Because there is over time also a lot of perhaps like ossified, institutionalized uh, prescriptions that are probably a departure from truth in big ways, mm -hmm. but that have been usurped by certain preachers and all of that. And so how do you, how do you separate that part out from the core truth? Mm -hmm. So I think science can help sometimes do that and awaken you up to what's right and what's wrong from what you're just inheriting from history, right? The second thing I'm finding is that science is actually starting to really give practical tools. When you take the, the idea of gratitude, it's one thing just to say, okay, just be grateful. And then you have these scientists who are coming up with very nice little exercises, like practical things. Take five minutes to write one thing that you are really grateful for today or something like that, right? Or the gratitude letter, as you know, you might know as an exercise and all that. So I'm finding that these practical tools, including from some fields of therapy, like acceptance and commitment therapy and cognitive behavior therapy, those practical tools are actually incredible. Yeah. In fact, I've had conversations with monks and nuns who find it really valuable to have some access to some of that science-based kind of tool toolkit. Yeah. So anyway, let me just stop there. What do you think? Oh, I agree. I'm trying to think in, off the top of my head, any surprises of psychology findings uh, in terms of that maybe even contradict. Is there anything that contradicts ancient wisdom? It's like, you know what? The Buddha was wrong with that, with what he said there. It's, that's not the truth or the reality of the world. And I'm trying to think, I'm having trouble thinking of anything that I was just like, wow, like they got it totally wrong. I think that there is a lot of, I mean, there obviously is value in science. I'm not, I'd be out of a job, but uh, in, in terms of uh, you want to make sure that the world is in a certain way and creating tools for healing, I think, is is definitely a positive. And you know, I think cognitive behavioral therapy has uh, done a good job in, in unearthing the patterns of cognitive distortions. You know, maybe some of the ancients have noted that we have cognitive distortions, but to actually chart out um, what are the most prominent ones among humans and um, what are some well-validated techniques that we can use to help people uh, stabilize their mind. Yeah, I, I, so there's definitely value in it, but I, I am trying to think of anything that's just totally, was totally contradicting something that some of the greats said in like uh, 10,000 years ago. Can you think of any anything? Well, uh, let me test out one with you. Although your book takes this um, exposition of the latest science to a new level, 
relative to some of the other positions I've seen people take out there, which is around how much potential does each of us have to reinvent ourselves, to grow, to expand our personality, our character, etc. Now, you know, you refer to in your book, some of the more empowering science today that is starting to reveal that a lot more is possible than uh, we may have thought otherwise. Uh, if I read you correct, yeah, uh, Scott? Oh, That's, yeah. But I mean, one gripe I've had with science, perhaps until recently, if, if this has already been now improved upon, is what they call the big five yeah. model. So can we talk about that for a second? Can you describe to our audience, what is the big five? And when I, you know, you know, I can talk about what my reservations and concerns are about that. My expectation that it's going to get upended, if it's not already upended. But I've had a couple of very heartfelt debates at times with a couple of psychologists who are very deeply steeped in the big five. Well, psychologists have discovered that in human over the course of uh, different cultures, and um, although that's debated a little bit nowadays with some of the more modern research on the big five, but that we have certain adjectives that pop up over and over again, um, that we have certain, there, there are certain personalities, traits that we all vary in, uh, in different dimensions from extroversion to conscientiousness, to neuroticism, to agreeableness, to openness to experiences. And we're somewhere on each of the, these continuums. And and it's actually a hierarchy. Everything's a hierarchy, but it seems like in, in my discussion today. But above the big five, you actually have the big two. Um, it seems like people tend to differ uh, whether or not they have stability or plasticity, or do they have the, the traits associated with emotional stability and conscientiousness and being able to reach your goals. Um, and you also have the ability to adapt, so um, to change plasticity. And then below the big five, you have 10 aspects. So each, each of the big five has two aspects. So extroversion is comprised of assertiveness and engagement. Um, each one of them has two. And then underneath the two, you have even more. And then under that, you have even more. You can have an unlimited amount of personality traits. So I just say I say that to be clear because a lot of people have a misconception of the big five as we're saying there's only five personality traits. But actually in modern day personality psychology, it's recognized that personality is just is is a hierarchy of traits. And there's many, many, almost an inf infinite amount. Depends what level of the hierarchy you want to look at. That's my nuanced answer. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's deep. That's that's much deeper than I, I thought we would go. Um, well, I'm a personality psychologist, so yeah, it's a, ner a nerdy personality psychologist to answer it. Scott, in that, to keep it simple, just for one point of kind of like perhaps debate between us, if you take one of those attributes, which is like the agreeable versus disagreeable, right? If I recall, yes. that's fine, right? You know, like I try to take that test and I find it very difficult to take it because I feel it's garbage in, garbage out for me. You know, the way the question is posed with those kind of like binary, you know, you know, kind of options and all that, I just find it hard because there are situations where I am happy to be extremely agreeable. Yeah. And there are situations where I consider it to be a great risk to actually be in agreement with something that could be putting the community at harm or putting truth in a poor light, etc. And so I find it very hard to actually self-report a certain kind of like place for myself on that spectrum right because it is so fair hey fair enough and uh there are different facets of agreeableness so you might score lower on politeness and higher on compassion or maybe the other way around i don't know only you know yourself the best but th these things can come apart in a lot of ways i find i'm not I don't, I'm, I'm higher in compassion than I am in politeness. I'll stand up for things I don't believe in, but I do want to re ultimately reduce the suffering of people. So that's why it's important. Where, where, at what level of specificity do you look in that hierarchy? Was that helpful? Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we don't have enough time, so this is going to be a debate that we will keep maybe doing offline when we meet next. Uh, next part. But for example, even even if you just take politeness, I mean, I've had situations where I've seen certain leaders generally have that as part of the demeanor, but also selectively, you know, selectively and strategically raise their voice or assert themselves in a certain way in order to do a little bit of a wake up, shake up selectively where they feel it's a it's a less harmful tool to do that in order to create a little bit of like stir than to have done something like quietly go behind the person's back and seek to influence them in a certain way or, you know, et cetera. Yeah. So, um, you know, so anyway, so th- th- these are more nuanced, nuanced contextual. questions. There's, there's yeah. a contextual component to personality that you don't feel is greatly captured by the big five. And I think that's important to point out for sure that we're just talking about propensities averaging over environments, but there are certain environments that bring out the best in us, certain environments that bring out the worst in us for sure. Very good. If you want to, <laughs> this is a question that everybody hates when you've written a profound, rich, deep, encyclopedic book, but I got to pose it to you for the benefit of our audience here, Scott. If you had to distill it down to one thing that you would like our friends here today to carry back with them, what is the biggest learning that you have received from doing the research and the writing of Transcend? No matter the how dire the circumstances seem, don't forget to neglect your higher possibilities. They're still there. That's it. That's beautiful. I told you I wanted to give you a gift back as a reference. So Scott, have you heard of a gentleman called Evans Lenz? No. Okay. So you talked about this correspondence between Israni and Maslow. So now I'll show you another juxtaposition of mysticism and, um, you know, modern science. And so Carl Jung has written the foreword to this book. Uh, The book that I want to recommend, if you're drawn to it, is called the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And it's not the Tibetan Book of the Living and Dead, it's the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Cool. And it is uh, translated by Evans Lenz. Now, Evans Lenz also wrote um, the foreword uh, to my spiritual master, Yogananda, his book called Autobiography of a Yogi. So now nice. we started to see all these connections between Yogananda and Evans Lenz, and then- It's uh, all connected. Jung, yeah. <laughs> you know, and all of that. And Carl Jung, in that- forward, which I'll never forget. You know, I, I read it when I was a teenager. I was very curious about what happens in life after death and all of that. He says that Western psychology has primarily focused on postnatal psychology. But what about prenatal psychology? What about preconception psychology? Is there something like preconception, you know, psychology as well? And that's what that whole book is about from a Buddhist lens, because it is a book about the deep philosophical understanding that the Buddha and his followers since have developed around what happens to the soul, what happens to the spirit, not during life, but in between two lives, from the point that, um, you know, you die to the point that in the case of Buddhist thought, right, that you are actually reincarnated on the planet. And so, you know, it may not work for everyone. And when you were talking about what has science not gotten to or disagreeing with um, Eastern thought, then, of course, the one arena where science hasn't yet entered and perhaps may never be able to with regard to physical evidence-based kind of way of doing science because maybe that's more about inner science, is the arena of perhaps is there a soul different from the body? What happens to it when the body kind of ends its journey and all of that, right? <laughs> so anyway. There's a famous joke about a person got caught cheating on a metaphysics exam by uh, looking into the soul of the person next to them. Oh, I see. <laughs> I do want. I want to thank you so much for having me on. You, so I want to really thank you. I don't take it for granted. So I just really want to want to thank everyone. It means a lot. Thank you for waking up and doing this. And we should be the ones expressing our gratitude. Uh, you are always so gracious, Scott. 
very, very grateful. I know you have to go, so we should allow you to make haste and uh, move on to your next commitment. But all the best with the further advancements in the work that you're doing and in the um, yeah propagation of Transcend into the world. I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you for joining us today. Me too. Thank you too. Thank you.